Hello and welcome to episode 172 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, Christmas comes a little later for you listeners because we have reviews of not one, but two big new holiday season movies, The Matrix Resurrections and Licorice Pizza. But first, how are you, Scott? I'm doing well. You know, we we went back and forth, I guess, even in our last recording, talking about whether we would get our traditional christmas two for one episode i think what a couple years ago it was little women and something else i don't even remember uncut at this gems. point yeah. oh was it uncut gems yeah okay. yeah that it was, was a what, banger what a, episode another banger episode absolutely yeah last year it was a bit of a mixed bag i think with wonder woman 1984 and soul oh um, yeah <laughs> i mean soul's a great film i, I stand by soul soul is in my like, top five sure yeah sure. um but yeah and this year we continue the tradition the tradition continues. I mean, of course, in 2018, every episode uh, was it was a two a two movie episode, so we don't have to go back that far to talk about what we covered then. Although I'm trying to remember what it would have been, and it's escaping me right now. I think about. it was like Aquaman, Mary Poppins Returns, maybe would have been like around Christmas oh God, time. What a combo! That's, 2018. That's probably right. Yeah. Oh man. Uh, pretty that's, rough. That's that's the worst year. That's why we don't talk about. That. That's why we don't talk about that year, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and I'm excited. I've seen a lot of movies this week. I guess it's actually been a minute since I've seen these two movies. I mean, Matrix Resurrection certainly recently, but I saw Licorice Pizza back when it first came out in New York almost a month ago. So it's been a minute now. But yeah, I'm excited to talk about these two highly anticipated movies, which are receiving. <laughs> Different critical and fan reviews, yeah. I think. <laughs> I think that is fair to say. Uh, but yeah, Scott, I had a good holiday as well. And yeah, I watched a ton of movies and a ton of 2021 movies as well. Um, you know, rewatching some stuff, you know, getting ready for our top 10 episode in a couple weeks. Yeah. But also watching some stuff for the first time. I watched The Novice, um, which is nominated for a few Indie Spirit Awards. We talked about that last week or the week before. Really enjoyed that. Um, yeah, obviously, Licorice Pizza. I watched last night. Um, and Matri- Matrix. Um, I watched at home on you watched Saturday all the Matrix movies recently. I did. Uh, yeah, I got through the sequels as well. And then one I was not expecting to see, Scott, was The Worst Person in the World, the Danish film by Joachim Trier, that is getting a lot of buzz. Um, and yeah. will likely be in the Oscar field for, uh, for best international, international feature. feature um it did make the short list um and fantastic movie um yeah. i won't say too much about it it may be coming up in that top 10 of the year episode we will see but um, and we may still review it later on yeah later yeah, on that it is does also have, a it does have a wide re- yeah it has a wide release in February. Yeah. The world is our oyster. But yeah, Scott, I was glad I was able to get that one in before the list. Um and I think I think we're getting close. Again, we only have two weeks to go. Uh we were talking about it earlier today that there's really to not ma- mainline a whole lot. some international features for you. I forgot yeah. I, mean, talking earlier, I forgot you haven't seen Parallel Mothers yet. 
I haven't seen Parallel Mothers either. Um, some of this, some of that will depend on when they come to my indie theater. I doubt I will get to a lot of them before we do our list. But really, for me, it's just a few foreign films and uh, the tragedy of Macbeth. I haven't seen, um, but that is coming out this weekend, so um, I should be able to catch that before our our list. But yeah, we do, we've done a good job this year. I think the festivals definitely helped us out catch you know a lot of stuff ahead of time. Nightmare Alley is another one that you just saw that I um, I still want to try to see as well um, before a couple of weeks. Bradley passes. Cooper just giving off the most intense Hugh Jackman energy that I've ever seen from an actor who isn't Hugh Jackman in Nightmare Alley. I mean, basically just like a darker, less like, I don't know what's the right word, um, fun, prestige. I don't know what the right word is. Like it's all reminiscence. Remember that was a movie? <laughs> I did see that movie earlier this year. I don't think that you did. So oh, I forgot but, that you saw it. I didn't think you saw it. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't not. I love Hugh Jackman. I love Rebecca Ferguson. I had to watch that thing. And boy, that thing was an atrocity. And speaking, this is a total side tangent, unrelated at all to what we were talking about this before. But reminiscence, just imagine how much money Hugh Jackman, especially, but probably also like Rebecca Ferguson, got paid for that movie to go to HBO Max. And that thing would have, even pre-COVID, that movie would have just died at the box office. Tanked, what yeah. A- what a horrible movie. Well, yeah, I mean, and Nightmare Alley is another example. But again, Nightmare Alley, as we kind of talked about, was like was sent out to die, basically, against Spider-Man and Matrix. Um, so they even really pushed the they even pushed its release back from the first week in December to the third week in December for no reason whatsoever. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, it is it's a shame to see, you know, Guillermo del Toro, you know, a recent winner of the Best Director Oscar. And also, and I mean, picture. you know, we're, we're going to talk about Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza. You know, the same thing is kind of happening to Licorice Pizza. It's a shame to see these movies just getting killed by theater chains because, you know, they're not bringing in the bucks like, of course. Um, well, I, I, I think Disney has, is but... the one killing Nightmare Alley, right? I mean, Disney is the one who pushed the release date back from mm-hmm. December, whatever it was, first to... I mean, whatever the day would have been to mm-hmm. December, like to Spider-Man's weekend, which is, I mean, deranged for them to do. Which is, yeah, which is weird because it's not like I've heard a lot of bad things about the movie. Like it's gotten, no, it's, it's, it's been solid. received well, yeah. It, it has some clear flaws. I haven't seen Shape of Water, so I can't compare it to it. But it's like also just like strikingly Guillermo del Toro cinema. I mean, like just like really... Mo- like dark monstery weird quirky but also has a lot of like heart and soul strangely enough in it as well which i think is like the best way to describe it i mean it, it is flawed for sure and this isn't supposed to be a review of nightmare alley but um it's the kind of movie where i think you could walk into it and if you've seen guillermo del toro movies before you can be like i bet guillermo del toro made this and I- yeah that doesn't right. necessarily traffic money very well, but licorice pizza. I mean, they like they screwed themselves on the distribution strategy on that. MGM is just yeah, clowning that, over here trying to do a that is true. Rollout. It was stu- it was stupid that like again I've said this before and then we can move on. But like it was stupid that I feel like I was reading people's takes on this movie for two months before I ever had a chance to see it because like you know there were critic screenings and then it you know it was rolled out in New York and L.A. and then still like there were weeks between the early rollout in, you know, the big cities, um, like when you were able to see it and yeah. it actually going wide. And by the time, you know, by the time we finally got here to the wide release, 
Spider-Man happened and, and you know it's looking like it's gonna probably make a billion or something. And now and you can't blame theater. Like I don't think you can blame theaters for prioritizing that. And they gotta make money, I guess. But yeah, yeah, it is it is a shame. Uh, I will say there was a decent crowd at my licorice pizza last night, though, on a Monday night, which I thought was a good sign. But anyway, uh, we got two movies to talk about, Scott, so we might as well get to it. Um, Our first movie tonight is The Matrix Resurrections, the long-awaited fourth entry in the Matrix franchise created by Lana and Lily Wachowski back in 1999. This time, it is just Lana who returns to direct, but she's not the only familiar face coming back to The Matrix. Keanu Reeves is back as computer programmer Thomas Anderson, who, as the film opens, we learn has turned the events of the first three Matrix films into a best-selling video game series. Thomas, famously known as Neo, of course, is also confused by his constant run-ins with a woman named Tiffany, who's played by Carrie Ann Moss and bears more than a passing resemblance to Neo's ex-lover and freedom fighter, Trinity. Though he thinks he has distanced himself from the events of the past and is even beginning to wonder whether said events actually happened, Neo gets a shock to his system when punk gunslinger Bugs, played by Jessica Henwick, and a figure from Neo's past, played by Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, appear to give Neo a shocking realization. He's still in the Matrix. Once again, however, humanity needs Neo's help back in the real world where humans and machines alike face multiple threats. One in the form of Agent Smith, played by Jonathan Groff, who wants to restore the Matrix to its previous state of war, and the other, a more shadowy figure, who wants to keep Neo away from reality altogether. Neo, however, only has one thing on his mind. If he is still alive, does that mean Trinity may be too? Scott, after almost 20 years, does the Matrix resurrection still have revolutionary thrills and engaging philosophy to offer or were you desperate to blue pill yourself back to reality to get away from this messy mind trip? Goodness me, Scott. I, so I guess I, I should preface all this by saying I have seen the full Matrix trilogy before. I know you mentioned just briefly ago that you that you caught the Matrix sequels for the first time before seeing this movie. We both did a full rewatch of the Matrix, original Matrix trilogy before we watched this. And frankly, thank God, because <laughs> there is no way I would have understood half of what was going on in this movie without that rewatch, or at least not appreciated it and understood the nuance going on as much. And I think that this really, for me, was a return to the thrills and philosophy of that original trilogy in a way that feels 20 years removed from it. And I don't mean that as a criticism whatsoever. It, it is, I think, a take that evolved, like it is something that Lana... Wachowski, because that is really the only perspective we get in this film, you know, how her perspective on her seminal piece of art evolved with her over 20 years and also having that art live in the public consciousness for that long as well. And I just think it's it's just such a rare piece of art um, and almost makes it to me really almost impossible to to grade if there is such a thing that we do here on the podcast when we give scores, because it, it just feels like so self-reflective on how pop culture has, I'd argue, taint, tainted what she intended The Matrix to be um, in, a, in a lot of ways. And so when you talk about the philosophy, and I think this is where it's important probably to have the context of things like Reloaded and Revolutions, which I think are a little bit more philosophy heavy, although of course they still have their action set pieces. And that's probably an entirely separate podcast to talk about those movies. But yeah, I, I, something that I really like about Reloaded and Revolutions, which I don't think 
it was possible probably for me to appreciate when I first saw those movies when I was I don't know, 15, 16 in high school is that there is just a lot being thrown at the wall, like a lot of ideas, a lot of things that aren't necessarily brought to a like a terminal conclusion in terms of philosophical ideology. And some of those things, not all of it works that well for me, but some of it really does. And I think some of the stuff that I appreciated more about Revolutions, revisiting it, is some of that stuff, especially in the first half of the movie. So I think some of the stuff they're exploring there and then at the very end, I think really clicks for me and had me really excited going into Resurrections. And I think if you were the kind of person who, even if you didn't necessarily um, agree with or, or vibe totally with everything the philosophy might have had to offer in the Matrix trilogy um, 20 years ago, I think if you were interested in that, and we're interested in how that might have evolved over 20 years, I think you're going to appreciate this movie. You may not necessarily agree with the direction Lana Wachowski goes in it, but I think you're at least going to appreciate what's being done. Meanwhile, there's the rest of film Twitter that seem to have an opinion on what the Matrix Resurrection should have been. Um, and that was apparently uh, better action sequences. And um, I don't know. Lana Wachowski, the creator of the Matrix franchise, not determining how the Matrix franchise should be. But I mean, overall, like this is this film has been so divisive. And I and I totally understand why. Um, but I just think it's so funny. And and it's just it's it's actually like the movie's point, right? Like I feel like the whole point of the movie is that people are gonna be mad about the movie that was made. Um and you know, call your shot, I guess. The <laughs> point of the movie is, who's mad? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, though, I mean, the first half of the movie is just, is basically just condescending to all, like, the Matrix fanboys that have co-opted uh, yeah, I mean, a franchise. Let's, let's clarify here. When you say, like, Matrix fanboys, I think what she really means is, like, the people who are like all in yeah. on the action based aspects of the matrix. And yeah. The who want, who want black and... trench coats with 30 guns in them and walk into an atrium. Right. I mean, the thing that you think of when you think yeah. the, of the matrix, uh, again, Bullet time. for better, for better or for worse, what do you think of? You think of the freaking lobby shootout, right? You think of yeah. doing the dodging the bullets and slow mo yeah. and all dodge that. this, things like think. that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and now for me more recently, the the highway cha the highway scene from The Matrix Reloaded. I mean, that's mm -hmm. what I think about. When I and think I really like the Matrix. garage shootout from Revolutions as well. Yeah, that's another good one. Seraph is like just an incredible God-tier character in cinema, in my opinion. Um, I totally understand why Jet Li turned that role down, but uh, I'm glad they were still able to, to have it in it. Anyway, uh, Resurrections, yeah, back to that movie. Um, yeah, look, it, it's... It's an incredible feat of filmmaking and art. It just it, it it boggles my mind that Warner Brothers like is okay putting this movie out. I mean, Lana Wachowski just rips them over and over in, in this movie, and it's just it's just incredible. It, it, again, I don't think I've had said anything relevant whatsoever to like actually this movie yet to actually review it. But I just I'm just in awe that the movie got made. I think. Just to talk about something more concrete, I think the action is frankly the worst part of the movie. I think most of the action is not very good. Intentionally in so, perhaps, and, though. Again, well, and, I, and I was about to say, and I think that was kind of the point. Yeah. Um, I mean, for all the haters out there, I mean, Neo and Trinity never hold a gun in this movie, um, which got people, I think, really riled up. And I think, you know, the newcomers 
the new actors, I should say, not necessarily new characters, but the new actors here, um, as well as the new characters, I think they all are just, I think they're on point. I think most of these are just really fantastic performances. I think Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss, I mean, they're still the center of this franchise in terms of like the emotional heartbeat. I think it's really easy to connect more to other characters in the franchise. But I think at the end of the day, you're not going to enjoy what's going on with the Matrix if you're not bought into like whatever Neo and Trinity are doing in these movies. I think that's just the truth of them. I mean, I, I think, for example, I think Morpheus can be your favorite character in the Matrix. But like ultimately, if yeah, exactly. Yeah, Scott's pointing at himself. And I think and I totally understand why. But if Neo and Trinity aren't doing something that you care about, it's not going to matter that Morpheus is your favorite character that much in terms of like you liking the movie. I think that's just my take on what I think about the, you know, the, the now four movies in the franchise. And I think that Keanu Reeves and, and Carrie Ann Moss are able to deliver on that. And I think Lana Wachowski is able to deliver a story that as sort of a repost to everything that we just talked about in terms of, oh, we want the action, we want the bullet time, we want the kick-ass, you know, agent scenes where Neo is, I don't know, spinning around a metal pole and kicking 100 Agent Smiths at once. Like, as much as, as people want that, I think the repost to that is, you know, you get these really high-minded um, mo- moments in, in the film. And uh, I don't think that lowers the tension at all in this movie i mean i you know watching this film for the first time in the theater last week i mean i was holding my breath it felt like through large portions of it because you just didn't know what was going to happen next and what turn it was going to be it feels like a real evolution of the franchise in a way that you just simply leave the meta stuff aside that you just don't see from reboots um and you know you know legacy sequels i think is the starting to be called uh, of franchises and, and something to take a bold swing like that, in addition to, I think, all the meta reflection that's going on about the franchise, about Lana Wachowski herself, about Warner Brothers, about the creative process, I think to remind its viewers that The Matrix is intended to be this really just like sort of great modern or postmodern love story um, between two people is just a really cool thing to double down on. And if people don't like it, like, go home and go watch the matrix over and over again, I guess. Like, I don't care. Like, and I don't think Lana Wachowski cares been, either. There, Yeah. There's never been a movie that has cared less. I think about whether you enjoy it or not. Like this yeah. is, it, this it is, is a piece. She of made this for, her, and think, for first and foremost. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, it is a piece of art by and for Lana Wachowski. And I think that's amazing. And in terms of Jessica Henwick, Yaya Abdul-Mateen II, Jonathan Groff. I mean, these are like amazing level performances for me. Like just really inspired stuff. I mean, from the first trailer. I mean, look, if we go back to when we talked about the Matrix Resurrection trailer for the first time on the podcast, I was super hesitant. I was like, I don't know why they're doing this. This feels very precarious to be putting all these deja vu-like moments from the original film into, into the trailer and sort of signaling that that this is what the movie's going to be and i think it took that and was like guess what screw you guys this isn't what we're doing we're doing something completely different um and i love that yeah neil patrick harris i think he's not to get too far into spoiler territory but you know i think a tease from the trailer that he's going to play some sort of 
important role, if not clear for what it is from the trailer. I think he does a real he does a really interesting job evolving an archetype of a character that we've seen in the Matrix franchise before. And that for a lot of people who are fans of the Matrix original trilogy, you know, is an important character um, in that trilogy. So I think, again, it's just evolutions in both big ways and small ways sort of littered throughout this, you know, fourth film in the franchise. And it's definitely not perfect. I think there are plenty of things that uh, I think could have could have been done better um, or done a little bit, you know, differently. But overall, I, I mean, I really, I love this thing. Um, and I can't wait to rewatch it. I think it's going to, I think my analysis of it, and I wasn't able to watch it a second time before recording the podcast, but I think my analysis of it is going to evolve a lot on a second watch when I'm not, again, sitting there holding my breath and just trying to figure out what the hell Lana Wachowski is doing uh, with this movie for the first you know, 90 plus minutes of it and just sort of sit back, relax and enjoy it. Because I think all of the different parts of this movie are really working in unison um, in, in a way that I think holds true from the previous movies as well. Yeah, I mean, I don't have uh, as close a relationship to the Matrix movies as you were saying. Um, you know, I didn't see the sequels until this year. Um, I've always liked the first one, but it's never been like one of those movies for me. Um, you know, I, I have, you know, gotten into the Wachowskis films a little bit more. I watched Bound and Speed Racer this past year. Um, really enjoyed both of those. Um, I really enjoy just the vision that they you know, are able to to bring to their movies. Like, maybe this makes me the type of person that Alana Wachowski is critiquing. I don't know. But the visuals in, you know, a lot of their movies are, you know, revolutionary in a way. Um, you know, they're, they don't, their movies don't look like anyone else's movies. Um, but what's, I think what's so unique, though, to, to this point, maybe this is where you're going with The Matrix Resurrections. Like, you talk so often about you how you really dislike the color palette of a lot of high budget action movies these days and how you, I think on Letterboxd, you're talking about how you weren't necessarily a fan of the color palette of the original Matrix movies either. Mm -hmm. But this movie goes, it, it's almost revolutionary in that it's yeah. not doing any of those things. It's doing something completely Bugs different. Bugs' blue hair. As soon as I saw Bugs' blue hair, I was like, oh, this is new. You're, um, there's no there's no green tint on the Matrix in this world. In, in many ways, yeah. it's almost... The freaking lemon lime tint that is on those movies oh is God. like a sprite ad from like 2003. Like that's literally what it looks like. Um, so yeah, but you mean the sprite I, ad is a Matrix movie from 2003? Yeah, I, I guess maybe it, I'm not, it's not quite right to say that it's always the visuals, but just like the imagination in general. I think, um, sure. and obviously, again, there are spectacular sequences. I think in all three of the movies. Um, the first one I still think is fantastic. Um, yeah. The second one I, I would say I like more than the average person probably. The third one I'm not a huge fan of, but it still has its moments. Um, and again, you I like still the first appreciate, act, didn't you? You like the first act yeah, of the movie. Yeah, yeah, I still appreciate, again, the imagination, the ambition that is involved. But I think, to your point, you know, the Trinity and Neo relationship is ultimately the heart of the Matrix movies. And, you know, the Resurrections is cementing that point and i never got fully connected to that relationship um mm -hmm. not in the first movie not in the second movie not really in the third movie um I, it just was never never fully there and so i think that's why i you know did not enjoy these as much as 
some people have, you know, the matrix, there, there's definitely a cult out there for all three of the movies now. Um, and I respect that for sure. Um, also this just, you know, this isn't the kind of franchise that I would just typically enjoy. Right. It's, it's very sure. self-serious, yeah. right. It's a lot of heady stuff going on. Just, yeah, like I said, it's take, taking itself very seriously, which at the same time, not always... Keanu Reeves is so goofy in these mm -hmm. movies and that character is played so straight. Like it's it's pretty funny to me. I mean, that's I kind know. of just his thing, yeah. Um, totally, yeah. But yeah, I mean, so this is never like something that I feel like I was gonna gonna love the the franchise, uh, but I definitely respect it a lot. And I think this is you know the best of the sequels for me, um, at least after first watch. I feel that way. Um, and I don't know if it's because I'm slightly disconnected to the the Matrix franchise or. I, I don't really know why, why. because to your, you know, I, th I feel like you're saying this, but like it, yes, it is definitely going after fans of a certain element of the matrix franchise, but I still feel like, again, this is, this movie is, you know, hundred percent a matrix movie and is very true yeah. to what the matrix franchise is about ultimately. And people saying, Oh, this is spitting in the face of fans and all this stuff. I question whether those people are really fans in the first place, right? Like, yeah. look, it's totally fine to love the Matrix, the action scenes in the Matrix. Like, I can't imagine if you love the Matrix that you don't love the action scenes, right? I can't but imagine that being one thing you don't love. But yeah, the person's like, yeah, the Matrix action scenes, okay. Cipher eating the steak, very good. Yeah. In that same way, I can't imagine that you love the Matrix movies and don't love the relationship between Neo and Trinity and like just the theme about like their love being this powerful force that outlasts everything, really. Um, I, you know, so I question whether these people when, when somebody says this is spinning in the face of fans, I question whether these people are really fans if, you know, the only thing they were ever getting out of this franchise was bullet time. Um, yeah, I guess my my only response to that is that I think it's fine to to love art in the way that you love it. If that if that means that what you love about the made like a major yeah, I'm not trying to date deep or anything. Yeah, no, and I don't think you are either. I just want to. I think I just want to add this sort of like in addition to what you're saying. Like, if you love the Matrix 1999 for its bullet time sequence into action, that's great. But the I think the important part is, and I think this is what actually going back to like actually what Lana Wachowski wants to say is that. You love that, whatever. I can't do anything about that. You love it the way you love it. But I'm going to make another Matrix movie. And if that's what you like about this movie, I don't care. If it, like the, the next movie in a franchise, the next reboot, the next legacy sequel, it shouldn't be for the fans. Like it shouldn't ha have, it shouldn't have the like Rise of Skywalker issue. It's like almost the other side of the coin that we were talking about, you know, last week with Spider-Man. That it's like, totally. Spider-Man embraces all fans and saying you're valid and come celebrate Spider-Man with us. And Lana Wachowski is saying, you have your, you know, you have my last, you know, Matrix movies. If you like them, that's fine. But like, Go this, watch is for me, not, yeah. this is for me, not for you. Um, and I think that those are two valid perspectives to take into these movies. And I think some people coming out of Spider-Man No Way Home were feeling real butthurt <laughs> that they were not brought into the fold <laughs> in the Matrix uh resurrections the way that they might have been brought into the fold with spider-man yeah. no way home and that's interesting i mean you know the meta stuff is really heavy in the first part of the movie and yeah i don't know i would have liked to even seen it go a little bit further just because 
there you know there particularly the there's like a scene where they're in the boardroom kind of they're talking about you know the design of the matrix 4 game that they're going to make and oh, yeah. Yeah. it's a unique thing of like you are seeing an artist risk like reflecting on the different interpretations that people have given to her art in the past 20 years or whatever and giving her emotions maybe about whether she feels that those interpretations are justified or warranted or what she intended or you know whether it's a misjudgment misunderstanding of what the movie is about and i mean that's fascinating again that you don't see that really ever in um in well movies, no filmmaker gets the opportunity to have to do that yeah what it, filmmaker it's, it's has had the chance rare. to really analyze their past work on on the yeah. screen very very few it's not, it's not like it's never happened before but very few it's rare so i found that stuff really interesting you know it gets pretty dense starting in the middle um yeah. it's a matrix movie you got to expect that it, it do be like um, that yeah. i think i followed most of it but um, it's, it's, you know, it's plot heavy, it's dense for sure. Um, I, I think and, you know, a, a lot of the stuff, and maybe this is what you're talking about. And I guess this is light spoilers for the matrix resurrections. If you haven't already seen it and want to, without us spoiling it for you. But like, I think everything, as soon as they, honestly, they pull Neo out of the matrix. I think it, it gets a little, like a lot harder to follow. I think a lot of it's really cool, but like the politics of IO and like Niobe, I think that stuff is like, where well, it goes a little bit overboard yeah. for me. I will say I did like like the first Niobe scene of them just like walking through and her kind of talking about here's what's happened in the last 60 sure. years and like that kind of expositional scene um, and talking about how the machines, you know, came to their side. And yeah. um, I, I thought that stuff was a cool like it was like a history lesson of here's what you, you know, here's what's happened since the last here's what you missed in 60 years. But yeah, I mean, I so I like I kind of like that niobe expositional history scene or whatever but then yeah you know it does get like the sati scene with priyanka chopra playing sati did you, i don't yeah, know that didn't that didn't really work yeah. for me did, uh, did, i mean i i think the question and i think this is what it comes down to is like did you like the heist i mean did you like that whole sort of like heist as it is being explained sort of framing structure of like the beginning of the third act of the movie or whatever I like the la I mean, I like the very last 20 minutes or so. I thought that and and, you know, to circle back, I think that, you know, I'm still not fully in on the Trinity and Neo relationship. Yeah, I just don't feel a lot of emotions for either of these character again, characters again. Morpheus was my guy for sure. in the, the original trilogy um, and. So, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know if I'll ever get all the way there, but something about the persistence, right? It, it's paying off a little bit. Like, yeah. again, I did feel a little twinge of something, you know, during some of their moments in the very end, ending of the movie. So I, I take that as a, an absolute win for the movie um, and yeah. for, for Lana Wachowski, at least in, in my book. And, you know, you make the point as well that the action scenes are probably intentionally and uh, you know, intentionally not as revolutionary. Or I, I want to be clear. Like, first of all, I don't think they look bad at all. Like, I think some people are overreacting to the the action scenes because, like, the Matrix, the original Matrix, obviously was like completely revolutionized action movies as we know them when it came out. 
So when, you know, 20 years pass, there's been all these advances in technology, this movie comes out, you know, you're expecting the same thing. And again, this is all part of, this is all playing into the, you know, Lana Wachowski's thought process here. But um, I, I think, I, I don't think point, the, though, the action looks bad. Um, I think, I so to this point, I think that it is getting talked about more than in other movies because it is a Matrix film. I think it is about on par with the bad action that we've seen this year in other movies that we've talked about on this podcast. Yeah. Talking about how some certain scenes in certain movies are like incomprehensible to follow. Edited because poorly, they're being yeah. they're edited so poorly and they're shot oh so up close that you can't even tell what's going on. I think that is true for the train scene in this movie. I think it is true um late later on past that when they're in what is it like the the warehouse or whatever before you get the fight with between specifically between Neo and Agent Smith. I think that earlier on in that scene, it is impossible to understand what's even going on. And in the coffee shop, I mean, again, there's so many bodies in there that it's just like so hard to tell what's going on. I just think that, I don't think that, that Lana cared that much <laughs> that the action scenes yeah. are hard to follow. And this is, I guess, my ultimate point that I was driving towards is, I get it, right? Like, again, we clearly get it, like, that what she, what she was going for, the intent behind, you know, maybe making the action scenes more sloppy because the whole thing is, look, this is not really what the Matrix, this is not what I wanted the Matrix to be. Um, mm -hmm. But it's it's a tough line to walk. And totally. I, don't know if, I don't know if I give the movie a lot of points because she accomplished her goal of making the action look mediocre. Uh, because I think at the end of the day, it's interesting the action to talk looks, about. Yeah, it not. is interesting to talk about. At yeah. the end of the day, the action still looks mediocre, right? And I personally feel that you could make a movie, you could make this movie with great action scenes, and it's not going to. The point is not going to be lost in there. Like I, I don't feel like, um, you know, I agree. Like a huge, huge points were scored by doing this. Um, I, you know, again, I respect, I respect it in the sense that she commits to her vision and what she wants this movie to be. And, um, you know, doesn't really care about what the reaction is going to be. And I respect it on that level. I think th that aspect is, is one aspect of the movie where I don't know that I necessarily feel that her intentions paid off in a, you know, good way. And again, she doesn't care. I, if she's listening to this right now, I know you don't care a lot. Um, and that's cool. I keep doing you. That's, you know, we're here to talk about to our, our podcast. We're here to talk to about our, our thoughts on the movie, and that's my thought on the movie that the action was just meh, and yeah. that may have been intentional, but that doesn't really improve it that much for me because it's still meh action at the end of the day. Um, mm -hmm. In general, though, I did enjoy the movie. Again, like I said, it's it's the most successful Matrix sequel for me. I really enjoy the meta stuff, the way that it's reflecting on. Um, fandom and nostalgia because like th this is another thing to talk about is I, and i guess we can get into spoilers at this point but um you know jonathan groff as agent smith and then neil patrick harris as the analyst who are like the villains in the movie um are both trying to like continue the matrix in their own way right like jonathan groff is basically trying to uh bring back the war between the the humans and machines the matrix basically that you have in the first in the original trilogy and then 
Neil Patrick Harris, the analyst, just wants Neo to go back into his pod and like for productivity. Yeah, him and Trinity to like, you know, not be together because they're way too powerful and they're together. Exist but not be together. Yeah. And again, this all is like playing into the whole meta thing going on here of like capitalism and co-opting narrative. Right. Like there's a whole discussion that goes on about like basically the Warner Brothers people saying in the movie that we would have made this movie no matter what. So you can either do, you know, you can either choose to be a part of it or we're just going to get somebody else to make the matrix. Um, Which is what would have happened. Yeah. And again, but there's fascinating things you know, there's just a lot of fascinating stuff to think about comparing it to other franchises, right? You compared it to Spider-Man, no way home. You have to, you know, you have to think about star Wars or whatever. Um, the fact that the villains are kind of the ones who want to bring nostalgia, right? Who want to bring fan service in a way they want, they, they are agents of, you know, fan service. Like I said, they want to bring back the matrix that everyone loves. Like, um, you know, people that people even talk about this with matrix revolutions, right? Like they're like, there's not enough stuff that happens in the matrix in the movie, right? Like they're barely in the matrix at all in matrix revolutions. Um, because it's mostly about like this war that's going on. Um, and so, I mean, it's obviously very clearly, this movie is obviously very clearly resisting the idea of, you know, making films to serve the fan, to give, you know, to give the fans what they want to hearken back to the old movies. It's very much about foraging a new path. But, but, I mean, a new path that is also faithful, like I said, to the ethos of what The Matrix is about. So, again, a lot of competing ideas going on here, but all very fascinating to think about. I think I've appreciated it more as I've, you know, been able to think about it, kind of parse it out um, and, you know, just kind of see what Lana Wachowski was going for. Um, So, I, you know, I, I think on the whole, the movie is is definitely successful at what it is aiming to do, whether that makes for a satisfying viewing experience results may vary, but I don't think it's a valid criticism to say, you know, like, like I was saying that it spits in the face of fans or that it's not a, this isn't a matrix movie or whatever. Like, no, it's a matrix movie. Lana Wachowski made it like saying that it spits in the face of fans misunderstands. I think like once again misunderstands that the matrix is for you lana wachowski isn't thinking about you when she's making this movie yeah like it makes you think about and it makes you think about like john watts right doing um like you know it makes me think about my review of of spider-man and all that and saying that john watts you know kind of got it right in terms of all the the fan service and all that um yeah. to the fan service for movies that he did not direct, right? That he didn't have anything to do with the Sam Raimi films, the Mark Webb, Andrew Garfield movies. Um, yeah. And, you know, it makes you think like when looking at some of the reactions to this movie, like, so let's say Lana Wachowski's like, forget it. I'm out. Right. They bring back um, they, or they bring in somebody new to direct this movie, and then that person does a John Watts style, you know, nostalgia fest, fan service fest, or whatever. And there would be all these people saying, "Oh, this is 
you know, this is such a great Matrix movie. This is so true to what the Matrix is. And it's not right now. You, you have to think about like, it's not. It makes me think about what does Sam Raimi think about Spider-Man No Way Home? What does Mark Webb think about Spider-Man but No Way Home? At the Way same Home? time, though, like Sam Raimi, Mark Webb, none of these people like owned, like created Spider-Man. You know, you know I that just is think true. it's a little bit yeah. different. Like you'd be... I think it, it, a better it's like John Watts goes into Spider-Man to make a movie that is supposed to pay homage to the character. I think what he has at this disposal is Spider-Men from other directors. But I, I still think that I, I hear what you're saying. I think there is a degree of truth to it. I just think it's a little bit different. It's like the Matrix is Lana Wachowski's. Yeah. Right. And, like, and maybe like a, a better Steve Ditko or whatever was like, how dare you? Right. Or Spider-Man. Yeah. Yeah. What if uh, maybe a better question is like, what does George Lucas think of like sure. the last Jedi or rise of Skywalker? Right. Um, because he created star Wars in the same way that. Yeah. I mean, Lana my understanding Chops is that George, George Lucas does not like the last Jedi, but I could be wrong with that. That's probably true. Um, but the difference is Ryan Johnson didn't go like, unlike JJ Abrams in the ninth movie did not go in trying to make a fan servicey movie. He went and made a movie that oh, was personal to not. him about yeah. star Wars. Mm-hmm. Right. He made a personal movie about star wars and that's what lana wachowski has done here with the matrix yeah but again yeah i think it's a really the reflective stuff that i have thought about in you know in in thinking about this movie more since i've watched it i I have a lot of conflicting emotions about it i guess (laughs) because it's like i think you're yes i i yeah i i understand like this person created the the franchise right it's it's their baby they know what it's supposed to be about. They know what it's intended to be about or whatever. But I don't know. I just feel like at, at some, on some level, the purpose of art is to, you know, connect with people and people are going to take things out of your work that you maybe never intended. Yeah. Does that make them, you know, valid or less valid because they appreciate your, your movie for having cool bullet time and stuff that you never really wanted it to be the point. I, I don't know, but it's, I think it's a success of the movie that, um, that, you know, it forces you to think about all these things, but it, it feels like to me it, to yeah. draw another comparison. It's like, it's like if Claude Monet as his last painting decided to paint, I don't know, lily pads, but not in impressionist style. Like he decided, I don't know, to just like paint some like photo realist, like as photorealistic port portrait of lily pads as possible as he could They're like mm, sorry this isn't a monet you know, like actually no claude monet still painted the damn thing <laughs> like it still yeah. is um maybe what was really important about all the lily pads was that they were lily pads not that they were impressionist paintings yeah no i think that's a good point i think ultimately what i'm trying to say is i don't know that i necessarily agree with all of the ideas in this movie and all of the sure. things that lana wachowski is proposing but i think the movie is better for proposing them for putting them out there and for getting us to actually think about what our feelings are about this and what do we want from fandoms franchises are and are we entitled as fans as mere fans as people who don't have anything to do with the creation of this are we entitled to anything right do we just need to sit up or you know sit down shut up and eat our our meal and um yeah, I got yeah, and, and to that point, and I think that's I think that's a great a great way to frame it. I, like at the end of the day, like for example, two years ago on the podcast, 
we did not come on after the rise of skywalker and say i can't believe it they didn't make a star wars movie i deserved xyz from my star wars movie we said which is wow, what people did after the last jedi yeah exactly and no what we had here on here is like wow what a huge disappointment i did not like that we didn't say can't believe that jj abrams decided to ruin star wars and yeah. what we said is like i didn't like that movie um it, it for me it did ruin it did ruin a lot of the arc of of the sequel trilogy but i don't think jj abrams didn't make a star wars movie but it's still like, there right and and i was making yeah. the same point with spider-man last week too right like you may not like the raimi movies you may not yeah. like the garfield movies i don't but they are still spider-man movies they still exist they are still there you can't yeah. you know wipe them away because you didn't enjoy them and i yeah. i felt like no way home actually did a good job of it's the it's the entitlement that. factor yeah, that is disturbing. I think sometimes with the fan reaction. I mean, we've certainly seen that in the past few years. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, Can yeah. We talk so, about some actors. Let's talk about some. Actors. Sure. Yeah. Let's talk about the cast. I know you are a fan of of a lot of the performances here. Obviously, again, you have Keanu Reeves, K Carrie Ann Moss returning um, as Neo and Trinity. Uh, you have the new new cast members, as you mentioned, Jonathan Groff as Agent Smith. Uh, Neil Patrick Harris as the analyst, Yahya Abdul-Mateen as Morpheus, and uh, Jessica Henwick as Bugs, uh, you know, a few other random people in there. Um, what did you, you know, who do you want to single out here? Oh, man, single out? I mean, I, I guess to single out, if I can only choose one, I'm going to pick Jessica Henwick. Like, I think that she was really framed as a character who is a proxy for us as the audience right like i think that's the best way i can describe bugs is like her literal arc in the movie is to guide is to is to like guide neo back to like his destiny essentially like to, to reorient him on a path to like be reunited with trinity and i think that we as the audience are supposed to view that like view the movie you know through her blue tinted sunglasses and I think that everything that's happening in the film is really, I think, really puts you in her shoes, like hearing the story of how she was, you know, woken from the Matrix, how she looked up to this guy jumping off the top of a building and saw that it was Neo and saw, you know, that things did not go the way she expected them to go in that sense. And I think that that is a proxy for us, like watching the original Matrix movies, right? Like we saw... Neo for who he really was, and we were, you know, awoken from the Matrix. And I think that that is something that's established pretty early on. And I don't like, I just think that she absolutely rips in this role. I think she's amazing. I think she carries herself perfectly in this role of Bugs. I think it's super charismatic and charming, has great chemistry um, with, with the rest of the members of the cast. You know, I think that I don't love all of the characters necessarily in this movie. And I mentioned Niobe is one that I think just something felt missing from that through line from the previous movies that is left a little bit unexplained, which is fine. I'm not saying that we should have added 20 more minutes to the movie to justify Niobe's character a little bit better. Um, but on the other hand, I feel like Jessica Henwick's existence in this movie as bugs is just perfectly justified and was a phenomenal performance you know i got that vibe from the trailer i was pretty excited going in what she was going to be able to deliver and i wasn't disappointed 
Yeah, I think she's really strong too. Um, you know, it's weird to think about. She's almost more of the Morpheus character in this movie, right? The, because of the angle you're talking about, right? Her seeing Neo and that like inspiring her to become what she becomes. I mean, that's yeah. that is kind she of believes Morpheus. In him. Yeah, yeah, his his unending faith is neo would have not gotten anywhere right in in the original matrix trilogy if it wasn't for morpheus you know believing that he was the one throughout all of it um so that's interesting to think about i mean to talk about morpheus i, I think yaya abdul mateen is is great casting for the role for sure um i don't know that they gave him enough to do here i, I do think some of his like some of the backstory is a little bit confusing with like who this is, right? Because he's like, he's controlled by a program at one point. It's like, there's this version of the game that should I explain it to you? Thomas Anderson has created like where things are playing out slightly differently than how they played out. in. I mean, that's how, the, right. That's how the movie opens with bugs. Yeah. Like walking yeah, yeah, in Abdul on the Mateen's first scene of character. the matrix. Yeah. 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 Yaya Abdul-Mateen's character, who becomes Morpheus, who becomes this new Morpheus, is an is a version of Agent Smith in right. a modal, which is an AI learning program built into the Matrix game um, that Neo in the Matrix has built, and Bugs, and the rest of her crew break into the modal to understand what's going on and why it exists. And in that process, freeze this version of Agent Smith who is liberated to be Morpheus. And it is, and we learned that Neo has built this version of the Agent Smith to have characteristics of Morpheus. Um, and the modal is meant to essentially cycle and repeat itself so that this version of Morpheus, this Agent Smith grows stronger and stronger and eventually breaks free from the Matrix. Uh, very fucking confusing. Very confusing. <laughs> um, typically heady fashion from the Matrix. Yeah. But yeah. And I think, honestly, you know, thinking about it more, I think that's what I liked maybe about Morpheus in the original trilogy is it's very simple to understand simple. what Morpheus is about, right? He has faith. He that's believes what he that Neo is the one, yeah. right? It's a it's a biblical allegory. I mean, we don't have to go down that route, but like no, the whole, it's a biblical allegory. What? The whole, what? I mean, it, it's pretty obvious. The first. Not the first time I saw The Matrix, but the, actually the previous, the most recent time before I saw it in preparation for this was in a college course that I had called Religion and Sci-Fi. Um, we watched The Matrix. So, um, yeah. He I mean, dies and comes back to life? What? Yeah, it's amazing. But, uh, but yeah, so I think that, you know, it, it, I what the Morpheus here, again, I think Yaya Abdul-Mateen is good in the role. He's well cast in the role. I'm not sure where it's going to go from here because there may be more movies. I don't know. This 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 very well could be know. the end, but um, it's not. It wasn't necessarily true to what I loved about Morpheus. But who cares, right? Like this movie isn't trying to be true to what anyone loved about the. Matrix. But it's also not the same Morpheus, right? It's not well, meant yeah. to be the same Morpheus. True, he has the Agent Smith DNA too. To your point, but. Um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, again, this movie is about Trinity and Neo's relationship. That is clearly what mattered to Lana Wachowski the most all along. And 
I liked the scenes at the end between them. I think the flying scene is really great where, um, you know, he, he can't, he can't fly. Like she has to pick him up. Basically she has to hold him, suspend him there. Um, you know, I thought that that was, that was pretty effective. The real superpowers come from those who love us. Yeah. It's, it's some big interstellar vibes, right? Like love is the most powerful force of all. And literally, I mean, literally it's a little bit on the nose, I guess, but it's like literally the analyst talks about like when Trinity, like Trinity and Neo are so powerful when they are together like that. He has to keep them apart because otherwise they will just overwhelm everything. Um, so a little cheesy, a little sappy, maybe a little, you know, Lana Wachowski, maybe also the matrix, a softy, but it's the matrix. And I like that aspect of it. Also, Um, sorry, Jonathan Groff. He's crushing. He's having a a great time in this role for sure. Um, so good. Yeah, he's great. And, uh, you know, obviously has a high bar to live up to with, um, Hugo Weaving, who is also having a great time, I feel like in this movie, he's just eating scenery. He's clowning. He's clowning uh, in, those, in those movies. Yeah, speaking of eating scenery, the Merovin- the Merovingian showing up. Oh and man! Like, so you watched this on HBO Max? So I, I just outed you. Did yeah. you? Yeah. What on earth was he saying? Um, <laughs> no idea. What he was saying. I'm going to be honest with you. Even when you have subtitles on, it still doesn't make a lot of sense. However, it is like, oh, it's like extremely like breaking the fourth wall meta type stuff. I think it is much. Um, yeah, I, I wish I could remember some of it more specifically, but it's really, it's really out that. That was a weird moment. Like he just really came back <laughs> to just scream in French. For context, in my, I, I don't know if it was just something about the sound in my screen or what it was, but I saw this thing in the theater, and I could not understand a yeah. single word that it's that not, he was it's saying. not very intelligible or intelligent. <laughs> but um, I just, I just gave up about three seconds in, and I just started cackling in the theater i'm just like i have no idea what he's saying oh my god yeah incredible it's the matrix baby let's go back to the matrix all right scott um anything else you want to hit before we uh, wrap up yeah i do i want to talk about the the analyst who is the new architect um for matrix heads out there is a very beloved has one very beloved scene in the matrix reloaded where he has this sort of tell-all moment with Neo sort of in the middle of, I don't know, the third act of the film. And I did not necessarily... Ex- I So I thought the real analyst, or sorry, the real architect was going to be back in this movie and didn't think that Neil Patrick Harris would necessarily be a new version of that. But I thought it was brilliant what they did with that character. I, I'm not in love with the whole, like, he sort of just explains everything all the time is essentially his role is to explain to you how things are different and what his master plan was. I don't think that's like the best use of, um, of the character. And I don't necessarily think that was what people loved about the architect from the matrix reloaded necessarily. There is a certain like smugness that I think people really liked about and, and, and like, like smug elitism and like know-it-allness about the character that, that people loved. And I think that Neil Patrick Harris does a good job of having that sort of same smugness. One part that I love about this game is that again, going back to the whole bullet time stuff is that the, the, the slow-mo in this movie is just Neil Patrick Harris, like maybe killing everyone <laughs> like different points in the movie, which I just could not get over while I was watching this film. Like, 
the bullet time sequences in this movie are Neil Patrick Harris like almost killing Trinity and, and like yeah. almost killing Neo another time another time. It was just incredible. Just incredible work from Lana Wachowski. And I thought Neil Patrick Harris did a good job. Yeah, he he's well suited to the role, I think. And again, I, I think it works just because of thematically yeah. what it's going for and trying to to keep him in the matrix and you know. Keep credit needle drop good or bad the reality of what this franchise is and what it's supposed to be but anyway um favorite Credits, scene or moment credit scott. needle drop good or bad scott thumbs up or thumbs down it was good it was a total callback to the uh the original yep. movie like i don't know who the band was um ashamedly or the artist was who was doing the song here at the end of this one but very heavily rage against the machine like rap metal type vibes which that's who who closes out the the original matrix um the yeah. you know cut to the closing credit so i like that that was a nice homage um there are still homages in this movie right it may nostalgia may be the villain here but like you know morpheus and neo have a whole kung fu fight just like they have in the, the original movie so there are still there are still homages here i will say um yeah favorite scene or moment scott oh man so so many to choose from i don't have any bullet time or gunfight sequences to point to in this one or chase scene i mean there is a big chase scene an overly long chase scene i might add um in this one but yeah i guess i guess i'm, I'm just gonna have to say it and this only has i think probably the effect on a first watch and i doubt that i would feel i'd have the same favorite scene on the second watch but man, like seeing what happens when they jump off that building at the end of the movie, and like that—that that is a—that is a moment of real suspense. What's going to happen at the end of that? Like you know something's going to happen. They're not just going to fall to their death or whatever. But I don't know. Like they make it pretty clear that Neo doesn't have those same powers anymore. Um, and so it sort of took my breath away to see how that scene was going to play out. So I, I really did love that moment. But there's so many things to love, and I mean, I've I've been on here for like. 45 minutes cackling about how amazing this movie is to me. So, I mean, the, there's like the bar scene, if you want to go for some like satire, um, like the, the bar scene where the handler or whatever, like the guy tells him what everyone loves about the matrix and they're all like hammered. And he's like, we need the new bullet time. Like, I don't know. I just, that was so funny. Yeah. Right. The, where they're all, you know, planning the game. And the, I mean, and this is also where it's like, people are giving their varying interpretations of what they thought the matrix was about, but it's all yeah. all presented very satirically. Like these are all ridiculous things. It's not actually what I intended, which again, very interesting to, to see an artist processing that on screen. Um, yeah. I mean, I've highlighted some scenes that I really liked. I guess it'd have to be the flying moment for me at the end. Like you said, um, the, you know, jumping off the building, what's going to happen because, you know, you say you say that they're not going to fall to their death. I felt like anything was possible at that point in the movie. Like, you know, such caution had been thrown to the wind in terms of what the fans, you know, the quote unquote fans were wanting or expecting from this movie that she could have killed off Neo or Trinity right there again. Um, not what the movie know. really was, though. It's going to go full. That's probably, that's probably true. That's probably true, but it, it was still a, a fascinating moment to watch that play out. And again, just these two people suspended out there all alone in the air feels like the truest expression of what she wants, of what Lana Wachowski wants the Matrix to be. So it's a leap um, of faith, baby. That was cool to see. All right. 
Put a score on it, Scott. I don't know how to put a score on this movie. I'm going to give it an eight. I have no idea what that means in the fact of this movie. I really like it a lot. I think it's worth seeing. If you don't like it, oh well. Yeah, I think it's worth seeing too. I'm very glad it exists. I don't know if we will ever see a movie like this or a franchise like this again. And so I Dune, want to baby. appreciate it Dune. while we have it here. Yes, maybe Dune is the one. Um, but uh, so, you know, I, again, I don't necessarily agree with everything that's in the movie, everything that it's trying to say, but I really respect it for for going there and for the, you know, again, Lana Wachowski throwing caution to the wind. So 7.5 for me. Uh, it's definitely worth seeing. All right, Scott, uh, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, review number two, and we'll let you, let you know whether Licorice Pizza, Paul Thomas Anderson's new film, is also worth seeing. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, our next film today is Licorice Pizza, the ninth feature from acclaimed auteur Paul Thomas Anderson and his first since 2017's Phantom Thread. Licorice Pizza is set in 1973 California, where 15-year-old hustler Gary Valentine, played by newcomer Cooper Hoffman, meets a free-spirited 20-something photography assistant named Alana Kane, played by Alana Hyam of the band Hyam, and is instantly smitten. Though Gary is still in high school, Alana, who is still searching for her purpose, is almost instantly won over by Gary's insatiable confidence and ability to make lemons from lemonade. And the two soon become unlikely friends and, and business partners as they wander the San Fernando Valley in search of their next scheme, meeting a motley crew of characters along the way, including Sean Penn as a legendary film actor, Bradley Cooper as lunatic movie producer John Peters, and Benny Safdie as a soft-spoken mayoral candidate harboring a secret. As they grow apart and back together several times over the course of a whirlwind year, Gary and Alana eventually have to confront what they really want from life and whether the other person has any part in that future. Scott, PTA's latest is lighter on plot and heavier on vibes than the great director is usually known for, but does this change of pace result in a sweet coming-of-age fable that left a smile on your face, or like its main characters, is it too scattershot and aimless to score a hit? Whew, what a question. I think, yeah, so this is a movie that I saw about a month ago. And, you know, I, I was excited to get to see this, you know, sooner rather than later. I am a big PTA fan. I love movies like There Will Be Blood. A huge fan of Phantom Thread, which I believe we reviewed on the podcast a couple, a couple years ago. I think it was one of our early early reviews because I think that Possibly. came out after 2017 ended at the beginning of 2018. So I believe we might have caught that up in a review on the podcast early on, one of our first few episodes. And look, I was I was looking forward to this. There's plenty of PTA gaps in my uh, viewing history. So I'm not a PTA completionist and I certainly plan on catching up on some other of the PTA goodness actually in the next month or so because Alamo Drafthouse is doing a bit of a retrospective uh, on him and showing a handful of his movies. But Licorice Pizza, man, I, I think the best way I can describe this movie is it's just utterly intoxicating in terms of filmmaking. I just found it like really hard not to be completely sucked in and drawn in 
to what PTA put in front of my eyes. Like more than that, like what the sounds that that he he set the the movie to, like the soundtrack, the score, etc. I mean, you talk about this movie being lighter on plot and heavier on vibes, and I think that's you know inarguably true. I think this movie really focuses on making you feel things in a, at a visceral level just from sights and sounds more so than making you trying to necessarily engage with the material and analyze the material that you have in front of you in terms of a story or or an art in a in a maybe more tr- quote-unquote traditional sense i think the performances are phenomenal i mean up there we just you know we just talked about a movie for an hour or whatever about how and a lot of the talk obviously wasn't necessarily about the characters but we talked about how strong the performances were and i think the performances here are equally strong i think cooper hoffman very 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 strong debut outing for him alana heim probably even more so i think obviously she's not a nobody and neither is cooper hoffman but like she's not a nobody i mean she's been a music star for years now i mean when did Heim's first album come out? Like when we were in high school? 2013, yeah. Yeah, at the end of our at the end of high school. Yeah. I mean, she's been around. I specifically now it was 2013 because I specifically remember I ordered it on CD from Amazon and I got it oh, delivered yeah. to my college dorm when I was a freshman. So Oh, okay, okay, okay. So it was like summer after or like yeah. you know, fall or whatever. Because I remember Heim being a thing like around that time. Um, uh, maybe even from you. I don't know. I think I remember you making a Facebook post about them probably or something like that when you used to make a lot of Facebook posts about your top music and whatnot. Mm -hmm. I definitely remember them being on that. But yeah, and so it's a new, it's new ground for her. I mean, she has done music videos before, of course, but this is, this is a big new step for her. And maybe it's something about PTA. Maybe she's just an incredible actress. Maybe it's both, but she puts in a really, really strong performance in this film. I think it's up there for me in, in best female performances um, of the year. Uh, I don't know if she's going to get a best actress nomination. It seems like she's kind of on the bubble right now. Like a maybe, maybe yeah, not territory. We'll see how conversation about this movie trends. I mean, we're still three months out. It just came out. Like and the movie just yeah. came out proper. Right. I mean, yeah. like last week. Yeah. And so there's, there's a lot of time for the race to develop. Um, so it'll be interesting to see where things go, but it's a really strong performance. I think these sort of almost cameo esque, um, features of people like Bradley Cooper and, you know, Bradley Cooper, I think especially sticks out, but <clears throat> Sean Penn is definitely up there too. Benny Safdie is doing something a little bit different than other than the other two guys I just mentioned. But like, I mean, Sean Penn and Bradley Cooper are just, are, they're just asked to do something completely deranged. In this John, film, John C. Riley, how about his cameo of three sure. seconds playing Fred Gwynn at this yeah. expo thing? He goes, I play Herman Munster. Yeah, that's like his only line. It was kind of yeah. incredible. It's it's the kind of movie that it's 130 plus minutes long or whatever, but you barely feel it. I mean, honestly, the oh, movie yeah. is just smooth, smooth as silk. Um but at the same time, I I, I, I say that, and I, I still, even retrospectively, I, it, it does have, I do have hesitations with it, which, you know, we can we can get into, because I think it's impossible to talk about this movie without talking about some of the discourse that's happened around it. I think some of, 
I think some of like the discourse has been taken to like an absurd level on both ends. Like the like the people saying this movie like endorses pedophilia or just pedophilia. Like, yeah. yeah, like I mean, and then the people who are like saying that people are saying that this movie is about pedophilia also just need to like calm down as well, in my opinion. Um, I don't think like real people on who are trying to have real conversations about this movie are talking about this film being about pedophilia. But maybe maybe I'm just like way off base yeah. about that. Um, I think I think that's just like a really strange take. Like I I feel like I'm someone who has qualms with with what's going on, you know, at at you know a little bit lower than the surface of this movie. But I'm not sitting here trying to like pedal that this film is like endorsing, you know, statutory rape or or like whatever. Um, yeah, I I don't want to get too much into spoilers yet, but yeah, I mean. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. The, we, the we, very we, ending of the movie is the only time really that anything approaching romantic or quote well, unquote sexual even happens yeah. between the two main characters. So romantic I disagree with you with. Sexual I would agree with. I would agree I definitely agree with that. Romantic, yeah, I think yeah. there is stuff going on. I mean, there that. are emotions, but physical, I guess, is what I'm saying. Anything physical that happens and, between yeah. them really is at the very end of the movie yeah so, so like you know sec- I, that, yeah like, to your point sexual agree we can talk well we can put that on the shelf we will let's let's mm-hmm. come back to that a little bit later on i do think <laughs> god i mean as funny as i did find most of this movie to be man i just i cannot believe a couple of the scenes in this movie and if you've yeah. seen the movie surely you know what i'm talking it's about the one negative that. yeah i mean boy oh boy what's just so so misguided to put that into a movie and i'm not even sitting here saying the movie is right like i know there's like a whole twitter thread out there about like how racist this movie is for putting this in i'm not trying to say that i just think it's so misguided to have put this in into the movie thank i mean my theater my theater where like the oxygen was sucked out of the out of the room when it happened the first time and there was just audible groans happened the second time yeah. and it I, does not appear to be the common experience in a thing because apparently people have been laughing it wasn't in mind yeah so people, i can't people did laugh yeah unfortunate i had a I had a completely full screening at lincoln square in um uh, in new york city and you could have heard a pin drop um after it happened the first it's, time and it's one of those things too I, like i'd seen rumblings on twitter about it and i was like oh here we go this is going to be like the stupid once upon a time in Hollywood criticism of like the Bruce Lee scene that was just completely unwarranted in my opinion. No, I saw the movie. It's pretty warranted. <laughs> yeah. the, the couple scenes involving John Michael Higgins character as Ooh. this restaurant owner who is married to multiple Japanese women. It's not good guys. It's, it's not, it's, but yeah. it certainly doesn't ruin the movie at all. It, it doesn't it, no i would not say it ruins the movie but i think it's it's, it's sad a, that there's anything like that to put a damper on the experience yeah it, it's a scar it doesn't ruin it but like it leaves it leaves a mark um which for me it's like if someone asked me like what did you think of licorice pizza i'm like it was really good but that and i wouldn't necessarily say that thing but like there's some things i really didn't like about it and that's like one of those things so you know you take you take your your licks where you get them i guess you live and learn um Hopefully PTA does not put that into another movie. I'll just say that. Um, and overall, look, I think overall, I'd still stand by my comments earlier on. Like this, this film is is intoxicating. There's nothing not to love about the the chemistry and like the kinetic energy of these characters, separate and together on the screen, living their lives in Encino. 
Um, it's just very absorbing. And it's the kind of movie that, and I said this about Dune earlier this year as well, that I could have just kept watching for hours and hours and hours. And there's been a few other movies that I've watched this year, not from 2021, but like things like The Apartment is another example, a movie that I saw for the first time this year. It's just the kind of movie where you get to the end of the film and you're like, I could watch another two, three, four hours of this thing and be totally fat, be totally fine. It's that kind of movie. It's it is really um, remarkable filmmaking. Yeah, because I want to know what happens after the last moment of this movie because and I think it is more yeah. ambiguous than maybe people have made it out to be. But um, yeah, maybe. Anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, I just feel really stupid after watching this movie, honestly, because you know we knew that there was going to be a new PTA movie likely coming out in 2022 or 2021 back when they we hit, did they, our... hit, they hit the eight ball though they didn't tell us it was actually coming out in 2021 for a while they let us assume that it would yeah for a good but it was rumored and yeah. you know we did our most anticipated episode neither one of us had it on there i didn't have it on there um i think paul paul or somebody said to me like oh you don't have the pta movie on there you don't have soggy bottom right which was the original title and i'm like yeah you know i don't have it on there just you know don't know that it's coming out don't you know don't have uh you know there were just five movies that i was anticipating more whatever didn't really think that much of it and you know i am a pta completionist now i watched punch drunk this year which was the only one that i hadn't seen um and i do you know i think that all of the movies are good like i don't think he's made a bad movie yet um boogie nights there will be blood magnolia definitely my favorites um but I, I think they're all good to great to amazing. Um, and then the first trailer for this movie drops right. And like it was it was a life changing experience from the first time you hear those first notes of David Bowie's life on Mars um, and you just see them like coasting through the school. Like I was like, oh, my gosh, like this is the most Scott Harvey movie that has come out in a long time. Right. Um, and. So the hype was incredibly real. Like I was dying to see this movie. Like you know, people again that we we were living, we were waiting two months. I was waiting two months to see it uh, after hearing people talk about it. Like the first critical reactions came out and they were really great. Then all the film Twitter people in New York and L.A. that I follow were seeing it, and I was seeing, I you know, I just I felt like I'd seen all the takes, and the movie still hadn't, wasn't coming out for two more weeks for me. Um, and finally, I saw it last night, and holy crap, this movie is amazing. Um, I don't know what other way to say it. Um, yeah, you just want to watch this movie forever. You just want to live in this movie. Um, it is a no-plot, all-vibes movie, and the vibes are just 10 out of 10 immaculate um, the, the entire time. Um, it is incredibly funny. It's in the running for funniest movie of the year um bradley cooper's cameo is out of this world tom waits's cameo is out of this world um it just like from that very first scene of like the two of them interacting with each other like within you know five minutes i was like come on like what more do you want like that the first you know again that exchange of dialogue is just is perfect and unexpected. I wasn't expecting the Cooper Hoffman character to be the way that he was, right? Because I think you look at Cooper Hoffman and also if you know, you know, you know his father was Philip Seymour Hoffman, um, the late actor who was in a lot of PTA's movies. You don't necessarily expect this character 
you don't expect him to be this character, right? Because he's kind of, you know, he's an awkward, kind of gawky-looking teenager. No offense to him, but that's, you know, his appearance. His father, Philip Seymour Hoffman, was not a movie star lead actor, right? He was a character actor through and through. And he was an amazing character actor. But, like, he is not, like, the movie star, like I said. Um, but this character, so you expect this to be like, oh, this is the gawky kid with, like, the crush, you know, on the older girl, whatever. This kid is like so confident from the the opening scene. Like that is his thing. He's a hustler, right? He's a people person. He just like he talks and talks, and eventually he just wins people over. Um, and so I wasn't expecting that at all, and I loved that. Um, but yeah, Alana Heim, unbelievable performance in the movie. Um, one of the best debut performances I've seen in years. Um, and you know. I hear what you're saying. Like, it, there's probably a combination of factors. Some of it is just the well-written character, but I do think a lot of it is her because you know I've I saw Heim in concert a few years ago. They're all very personable. Um, it's funny. I would have expected Esty to be, who's the oldest sister, to be the first one to get a film role because she well, is the. They one all got a film like, role, Scott. I don't know if you saw them in this movie. Or is not. the heavy talker? Yeah, they did, and that was I. I loved that too. Um, yeah inspired but, um, by the casting for sure yeah but yeah um but anyway I, I would have expected her to be the first one she has probably the biggest personalities but i mean they are all like super personal it's not just that their music's good they just seem like really cool people that you want to hang out with so you know i i'm not surprised to see her getting a movie role i am surprised by how much she crushed it like i'm not i guess i'm not totally surprised that she was great to my point uh but like this is you know a, a holy crap you know i talked a few weeks ago about rachel ziegler and her singing i feel pretty being sort of a jaw-dropping a star is born type moment every scene alana Heim in this is an end in this movie is kind of like that like you're just you can't stop watching her um you know i think this is kind of a movie too that like it's obviously a coming of age movie but it's an interesting one where these two characters are kind of like moving in opposite directions right quite literally at points in the movie there's a there's a you know a running motif of them running a running a literal running motif pta uh, likes running running towards each other um most of the time they're literally sort of meeting in the middle because alana is we don't know exactly how old she is but she says that she's 25 a couple of times she says she's 28 at one point she's somewhere in her 20s um she's in her late 20s mid to she's late probably 20s, 28 probably. she's probably um, yeah that's entirely possible yeah. but she is her trajectory is going towards like younger because she's aimless right she doesn't she still doesn't have it all figured out she doesn't know exactly what she wants to do we see her trying on a lot of different hats over the course of the movie um you know she gets involved with this political campaign she tries to be an actress um you know she's getting involved with with uh gary and all of his schemes and everything his hustle. Um, she doesn't know what she wants to do she is still kind of clinging to those you know last free f freeing moments of adolescence whereas gary right is trending up right like this kid is 15 but he is like gonna be skylar gizondo oh gosh talk about another amazing cameo in the movie yeah. they have the stake all the way back here that's great um oh, <laughs> yeah. i was dead during that line but um but anyway uh yeah so he's trending upwards right like he's 
he's you know he's running his own businesses at multiple times through the movie like again he's a hustler like people don't really see a 15 year old kid when they see him in this movie like he is he very much acts older than his age he has a confidence that belies what his age and experience is um so it's fascinating to watch their dynamic and the way that they are both sort of getting something that they need from each other and just watching them slowly come to that realization over the course of the movie is is kind of what is thematically driving everything forward and you know again i do like where the movie goes thematically overall but for me this movie is you know the themes the subtext uh, everything below the surface is very much secondary to why i enjoy it and the you know primary is that it is just fun as hell to watch and hilarious and has amazing characters and has you know a, a wonderful sense of time and place the needle drops are perfection um it is all of the stuff that i specifically like in movies really um and it is a movie that i will probably watch dozens of times over the next decade or so um it, it like i said you just want to go back to it you just want to keep living in that world for a little bit longer um it is amazing um it is beyond boogie nights which you know was my favorite pta movie um and and is the one that is most resembles this for sure and scott you're going to see boogie nights in a few weeks and i'll be interested to see your takes after that but i did not, um, I did not realize that movie was 156 minutes long what on earth it and we're talking about well-paced movies i have often said especially after watching it recently bookie nights has to be in like the top five most well-paced movies of all time like the movie starts and five minutes later it's over like that's how it feels because yeah, i think you, 156 minutes later you think saying. this movie goes fast boogie nights goes you know possibly faster it's just i just like, thought for sure that movie was like 100 minutes long <laughs> yeah i know but well magnolia is over three hours long well, sure. that i but, know um, that, that i did know but, but boogie nights has a sting in the tail at the end and this movie doesn't really have that it i mean it is it is pragmatic it is realistic like i don't think it is just a complete rose-colored oh, glasses I don't, fantasy um I, I don't know if i agree about that but okay yeah well uh, i i do i like I, I don't think again i don't think it's a completely unbelievable rose-colored glasses fantasy but um there are some wish fulfillment probably for sure but um so that is why ultimately like I enjoy it more, right? Like, I don't know if it's a better film or whatnot, but it gives me what I want from it. Like this, this gives me, this movie gives me everything that I want from movies. Uh, sure. And at the end of the day, you know, I, I don't know what our lists are going to look like in a couple of weeks, Scott, but I think we're going to have like, you know, differing approaches. Cause you know, you very much are, are big on like the, the power of the dog and dune and these like really heavy like thematic movies and um you know the stuff that for me is like i appreciate as brilliant but also like leaves me a little cold where something like this maybe it's messy maybe it's a little all over the place maybe it's just like floating between all these different uh incidents and you're like how is this connected exactly it's just you know it's kind of ramshackle in the way that it's put together um but it's just fun as hell to watch and like i'm just on cloud nine walking out of the theater um and i think that's i mean i think that's good i think that's why we have an interesting podcast because we i think 
look for different things, you know, ultimately from movies and our lists will probably yeah. reflect that. No, um, it's, a, it's such a fascinating point too. Cause I think like, I, I think I come around more on the types of movies that you're describing that I don't typically put in my top 10 as mm-hmm. time goes on. Like for example, rewind to 2019. I don't remember if book smart and knives out were both in my top 10 or not, but those are like a hundred percent. If I like went back and redid my list for 2019, like I would 100% have them. Totally. And I've like, I think I've rewatched and re-rated them higher since since 2019. And I'm just like, yes, in 2019, my number one movie was 1917. And I do rewatch that movie every year and love it every single time that I watch it. But like, I don't know, like my numbers two, three, four, five, like I don't remember exactly what those were, like some combination of like Parasite, Marriage Story, et cetera, et cetera. Like I'm not going to rewatch those movies as much as I'm going to rewatch Knives Out. And yeah. Smart and, things and like that's that. what I was going to say. I think the rewatch factor is big in this, too, because, again, like Power of the Dog, Dune, like I really, you know, appreciate the the heck out of these movies, but. I haven't rewatched either of them. I haven't like been dying to rewatch either of them. Whereas like when this movie ended, I was like, start it again. Let's run it back. Let's do it again. Um, mm-hmm. And I will uh, probably try to see it again before the week's over. Yeah. On the rewatch point, like, I mean, I've seen Dune four times now and I'd happily, yeah. if, if it showed up in IMAX next week, I'd go back and watch it again. Um, well, yeah. I think that yeah. gets at maybe what I'm saying is like the movies that we want to come back to yeah, are just no, like fundamentally different. Um, I definitely feel more it, inspired and less cold from the types of movies you've described that you yeah. find yourself, like the power of the dog, a tough watch, no doubt. I, and I'm not necessarily, I want to go back and necessarily watch it again. In fact, I probably would not have watched it again if we hadn't reviewed it, you know, months after I saw it originally. But when I did, I got a lot out of that experience and I felt like I took a lot away from it. Even if again, I don't ever plan on watching power of the dog again. Mm-hmm. But to your but anyway, none of that is contradicting your point. I think that's all. Supportive. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, licorice pizza, um, everything I wanted and more. Um, this just was a glorious experience. Um, I just like I came out of the movie, I started messaging people who had seen it. I was just like, I want to just talk about like every scene in this movie with everyone. Cause like there was, there was that some... you didn't message me. I know you didn't. <laughs> well, because I knew that you had more mixed feelings on it, but um I'm a, but I can, I'm a I, reasonable like, person though there's something in every yeah you, you are you are for sure and and i will say like i i am glad like because you know i i, I looked at all the age gap and i mean it's, it's again it's not really about the age gap it is that you know he is a minor she is not um she's an adult and the that's age really gap is only a function of like the context itself right like yeah age gaps bigger age as people on twitter have pointed out to like gross extremes Worst age gap. I mean, Leo DiCaprio is the Red Rocket, of like a bigger age gap. Red, Red Rocket, Rocket also came out this year. Um, yeah. Well, but... Red Rocket, okay, I think we can both agree Red Rocket is doing something different with that material. Well, yeah. Spe- because and because Red Rocket goes much further with what it shows on screen, it has to, sure. I think, be a more, by, by its nature, it has to be a more critical film like it has to be it has to have a lot more on its mind than this movie does because you literally see them have sex like whereas in this but even if you didn't show that until the very end before they even kiss even if you didn't show that on screen i think that red rock is trying to do something different that licorice pizza is trying oh for sure again glorify these moments of like you know teenage youthfulness and you know sort of the world is your sort of oyster mentality on life um not so surprising to to know that people who have seen Red Rocket may not necessarily think that is what Red Rocket is about. 
I think the fortunate thing is that the, a lot of these people haven't seen Red Rocket, right? Because if they have this problem with licorice pizza, even though I think Red Rocket is clearly the more explicitly condemning this type of, well, I wouldn't say it's explicitly. I think that's why that's why it's a good movie because it's it is not strongly explicitly doing it. it though by it it, it, it is condemning it, it but it out. is not like explicit. It is not telling you that it is condemning yes. it, right? It, it, you Sean have to Baker put the does not together. show up on the screen and say, "This is bad, guys. Look how he bad." He's not full Adam McKay, uh, but yeah. he. Uh, but but I think again for for the people who have these issues, that may not even matter. Like they may just see something that they find problematic, and that's the end of it. Again, depiction equals endorsement. But what I was going to say is, yeah. I think. I appreciate that you also had this criticism of the movie uh, of Licorice Pizza because I otherwise I would have just completely dismissed it. And, you know, because I, I you know, I, the people who are putting it out there on Twitter, uh, like I would just I really would probably wouldn't have even listened to them because it's not necessarily sure. people that I would usually listen to about movies. But the fact that you said something and you're a very smart individual, I was like, <laughs> OK, maybe there's something a little bit yeah. more here and it so i just i thought about the movie i guess on a deeper level yeah. um than i otherwise would have because i knew that we were going to talk about it and um i kind of wanted to understand yeah. why i necessarily didn't feel the same way that you did about yeah that. so but taking taking the box off the shelf that we placed on the shelf earlier <laughs> yeah i i just i think that i do think that the end it is ambiguous to an extent. I do think that the heavy implication is that for some nondescript length of time, these two people are going to be more explicitly involved or whatever yeah. than they have been in the movie that, that far. They don't show any of that. That's all like off screen in the future. We're stopping the movie here and putting a pin in it. And I, I do think that is a bit problematic. I actually thought that it was going to navigate that relationship fully to the conclusion and sort of like yes it's like kind of weird right that they're like friends in the way that they are friends but like it never really crosses a line and i totally understand an argument that says well they never really crossed the line i think the movie kind of does cross the line a little bit at the end and i think to your point your point earlier about depiction does an equal endorsement i don't know man i'm not sure that paul thomas anderson isn't endorsing it in this movie, I mean, this movie is well, a yeah, celebration talking, of what's on the screen. I was talking more about Red Rocket when I was saying that, but no, I, um, I, I, I know, I know you were, and I'm saying taking that, taking that mm -hmm. point about Red Rocket. I think that Paul Thomas Anderson is definitely not, not endorsing it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, no, I, I, I don't disagree with that either. I just think, yeah. for me, there's a few things. One is, yeah, I don't know that it. I don't. I'm not so convinced that they're going to be romantically involved, right? Because this whole movie is unpredictable. You have no idea where sure. it's going to go next. And these two people are unpredictable. Like, again, they grow apart and together and, you know, they're apart. They're together. They're back. It's back and forth the entire movie. Mm -hmm. They're getting in all these crazy situations where you don't know what's going to happen next. Um, I, I have I, I just don't feel comfortable enough saying what is even going to happen the next day after this movie. Like, are they even still going to be friends the next day when they wake up? But Probably. I guess my question of that is that. Is that is that important whether you're sure or not? What do you mean by that? Is it important what the next day is going to bring? No, probably not. I mean, pro probably not because you know it. I think it is. It is a moment of realization again that they both 
they both need each other. Um, and I think an interesting, an interesting thing to that that helped me also was looking at all the other adult male characters in the the movie because I think that we have to start from the premise that both of these characters like want companionship and like do not want to be on their own in the world. Um, sure. You know, Cooper Hoffman, again, Gary, he's very much a people person. He's always trying to talk to people and get them involved in some new scheme. Alana, you know, there's a, some line early on after she's brought um, Skylar Gisondo's character over. I think it's SD that maybe says to her something about, Oh, that she's always bringing boyfriends over to dinner or whatever. Like she's in search of, a person who, you know, can... She's a serial monogamist. Yeah, well, um, sure. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but so I think you have to start from that premise. And then, you know, she is trying out, like, these different experiences over the course of the movie. Like, Sean Penn, right? Like, she kind of cuddles up to him or whatever. Well, how does he end up? Like, he is a complete imbecile who, you know, wrecks his motorcycle and it ends up all these adults, right, are like hoo-hawing while after he does this stunt and she's been thrown off the bike and the only person who comes to her rescue, who is it? It's Gary. And then, you know, Benny Safdie, it's a more complicated situation, um, what happens with him, but also like, you know, he invites her to this restaurant, like he's having this whole argument like out there in public um, with his boyfriend. And it's, it's a little immature, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Bradley Cooper obviously doesn't even need to be said. Like he's kind of flirting with um, Alana at, at one point. Cause he just seems to flirt with like every woman. It's again, it's hilarious that like, he's just, he's just keeps showing up. Like <laughs> somehow they just keep running into him all over the place and he's just chaotic. But um but anyway, but and obviously he's a lunatic. So I, I think, again, if you take it as they need they're both looking for companionship, whatever that means, romantic friendship, something business partner. Do we really think that Alana is going to be better off having one of these adult men as her companion? Or is it going to be the person that she actually enjoys being around and who actually seems to have more than a passing care for her? Right. Um, which is Gary. But that, yeah, and I guess, and this is where I insert, and maybe this is just like, I don't know, plainly obvious and not worth saying, but like, he's 15. Like, Gary shouldn't be that person. And, 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 and this character of Alana Kane should not be putting a 15-year-old in that position. Like, I think that is her responsibility. I understand, like, a, and from a romantic, like, she knows, she knows how he feels about her. And she's exploiting that. Like, it is true she's exploiting that. It's not that he's not also exploiting her in other parts of the film. Sure, I'd like totally understand. Yeah, I don't think either happening. character is supposed to be perfect. I mean, they, these are definitely very flawed people. Um, sh sure, but I think there's a difference between saying a character is not perfect and is flawed, and this person is twenty, somewhere between 25 and 28, and exploiting the romantic interest of someone who's 15 in them. And I, I think that they're, those are different things. I think to the degree you think that's a problem is maybe just like, something we we vary on but like i think yeah, I, I, I think that I, mean, I think that is a real issue and do i think that that alana Kane is being predatory towards him no that's silly no. she's not being predatory towards him but i think that it's like a more subtle toxicity in the relationship that she 
she doesn't operate this like massive power dynamic over him, right? Which I think it would be an obvious complaint if something like that existed um, in, in the movie. Like, for example, if she ended up in some sort of like weird, messy relationship with like Sean Penn's character or whatever, like clearly that'd be a, like he's a he's like a film person that she's trying to like get in with, right? To like get parts or whatever. Like there's obvious power dynamics there that doesn't necessarily exist in her, whatever her relationship is with Gary. But he's 15. And yes, he may act more mature than that. And yes, she may act more immature than 25 to 28. And like at a maturity level, maybe they're closer. But he's 15. And I think that matters. I think that matters a lot at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I, yeah, I guess I just didn't see it the same way. Because my whole thing, my, my other thing I was going to say is I just don't feel like, and I realize it's a slippery slope to say this, right? Because the numbers are what the numbers are. I understand that. I don't feel like anybody is getting taken advantage of in this relationship. Like that's, that's the way I see it. And um, I, I get, I guess I would disagree with that. I think, I think that yeah, I mean, I think you taking would, advantage said, yeah. of each other in different ways. And I think certain forms of taking advantage of someone are worse than others. And I think that the way, the, the way that I read how Alana is interpreting Gary's feelings for her and using that again to like, I don't know, have companionship or be in a business partnership that is profitable for her, like whatever you want to particularly single out. Like, I think that's, I think that is more problematic than like this overconfident 15 year old trying to achieve companionship from someone who is significantly older and more, and you know, quote, more mature than him. And I think. I don't think this is the be all end all of it either, but I think there is some truth to it to like, if the genders were swapped on this, it would look a lot worse than it does. I don't think that's the be all end all criticism, but if Cooper Hoffman was playing a 28 year old and Alana Kane was playing a 15 year old, I think people would have a lot more problems with this movie than they do. And I think that there's just like some very subtle, implicit sexism, but like lowercase s involved with like the gender rolling of like if the woman is older then it's it feels less bad than if the guy is older yeah yeah i mean i i don't disagree with that part i, I see what you're saying on that on that aspect of it um but yeah i guess we just we just fundamentally do view it differently and um again i i don't see the kiss again as necessarily a romantic thing more as they are just caught up in the euphoria of realizing that like again, this is the person that they need at this point in their life. Like this is the answer to the issues that they have been having, the uncertainty that they've been having about their future. Um, they're yeah. at least going to be able to, th that uncertainty is still going to be there, but they're going to be able to do it together, right? They're going to have each other side by side. And, you know, it, again, it's this euphoric moment. They're running to each other and that all expresses itself in the form of a kiss. Yeah, and I don't even disagree with with that assessment of how the movie concludes. Characters can make mistakes on the screen all the time. People make mistakes, and oftentimes, like, the act of showing the mistake and acknowledging the mistake, even, like, not explicitly on the screen, but, like, the filmmaker creating a scene in a way that acknowledges, like, hey, maybe this is the wrong thing that happened in this moment, and that is something to think about. I think that there's, like, a way to navigate that and express what you're describing as, like, hey, this happened and like, maybe that was the wrong thing without having to obviously explicitly say that on the screen. 
I don't think that movie is doing that. I don't think this movie is interested in doing that. And I think that is where maybe I see the the divergence between handling that material in the right way. Again, I'm not out here saying, I don't know, like Cooper Hoffman or Gary's mom needs to come on screen and be like underage relationship, like relationships with underage boys are bad. Like, obviously we don't need to have any of that clowning happening on the screen, which I, I know. Is I don't like think Gary's thing. mom would even say that either. She seems pretty cool. So, I mean, look, okay. Uh, I guess on the, on the notion of parents, and this will be the last thing I say, and this again, is not the be all and end all of criticism, but like, if you had a 15-year-old son and he was trying to be in a relationship with a 27-year-old-ish, would you be okay with that? Yeah, I don't know. On the flip side, though, it does seem like uh, uh, Alana's sisters, Danielle and Esty, are, like, cool with it. Like, they're basically just, like, encouraging Very Gary to go to after me. her. In yeah. the end. Um, I will say there was, like, a small plot hole at the end, I felt like, because um, Danielle and Esty tell him to go to the headquarters where she is, yeah. right? Yeah. And then Alana shows up at the pinball palace and but he wasn't, finds she wasn't coming from the headquarters though. She yeah, well, it doesn't matter. No, no, no. This isn't what I this okay. isn't what I was saying. She she walks in and she finds Danielle and she's like, Where is Gary? And mm -hmm. she is like, I don't know. Well, why wouldn't she say he went to find you at the headquarters? Because she literally told him to do that and then she sees him leave, right? Like it's pretty maybe, maybe he's trying she's trying to throw them off. Completely. Maybe she's trying yeah, to break the relationship. That would be really. That seems really weird, though. Like if he, <laughs> if she tells him to go to the the place that she wants them to get together. So then why would yeah. you? But anyway, just I thought of that because we we're talking about the ending. To talk about some other good stuff real quickly in the movie sure. before we wrap up. The Bradley Cooper sequence was incredible to me, um, and it was a classic PTA sequence of like it starts off and it's just like hilarious. You're just like I mean it's just you know another fun little lark interlude in the movie and then all of a sudden this like tension just comes out of nowhere and you're just like gripping your seat like what is going to happen when you know they go find his ferrari they smash it up and then they, they run out of gas right there and then you know it ends up with alana basically the whole that whole part is just like silent a lot of it is silent just like backing all the way down this hill and then riding the momentum of the car like trying to make it to a the gas another station. fuel station um it was just electric like that was maybe my favorite sequence of a movie this year was just watching where that whole thing went um and when he stops them when they're originally leaving even before that starts and he stops and he's like you need to drive me to the he gas just station hops in after yeah. they've messed up his house right they yeah. they left the hose running on the waterbed and yeah i mean bradley cooper is just going insane again in the movie and he had um, a great year this year Came in, yeah. came in with a strong December. It, it's a, it's a, it's a great performance. Um, yeah, uh, there's just, it's just so the movie's just so I, much fun. I love on the, the on the Bradley Cooper character. Sorry, just one yeah. last thing. I, I, no, go ahead. I do love that scene as well. I do think that they just, and this is like a, a maybe like it's a common thread with the movie that he's just like a little bit PTA is like a little bit too high on his own sauce. I think adding in like another womanizing scene at the end of that thread where he they're, they're like sitting on the curb or whatever and he like walks up behind him and starts like, oh I, I thought that was hilarious though he just uh, like chases just, just, after the random girls that was hilarious i thought it was pretty distasteful to like show him hitting on like another group of women personally that just for me um given the context of other repeated jokes that shouldn't have been repeated i think it was fine the first time but i just i think it's really easy to like that when you're not a woman and not feel uncomfortable by that but i don't know things
maybe it's I read less into it if there weren't other jokes that were overwrought. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I felt like that, that might be a little bit overdoing it. But anyway, I, I, I thought it was fine. It was just it was a throwaway gag there. Like, you know, as he's just walking away, you, ba you barely even hear it. Like, it's just, it's very much going on in the back. It's very clearly in the back. I mean, that's the point of the shot, though, is to frame that. He's doing I, sure, background. sure. Um, I, I, just, I thought it was funny. I didn't really think that much of it. But um. But anyway, the other and another sequence that I, I loved was, yeah, all the stuff with Skylar Gisondo and where oh he God, comes legend. over for the date. And then yeah. her whole running in to the house and just like annihilating everyone and like Esty, <laughs> like yelling at Esty, like, you're a thinker. You're always thinking. Um, yeah. Oh, it was so great. And yeah, just some of her like spontaneous moments, like. Also, when she runs to the when she's trying to run to the police station after him, when he just randomly gets picked up and she just like runs into those kids and she's just like, F off, teenagers. Yeah, uh, hilarious. Like, again, Alana Haim just she she crushed it. I, who knows if she'll ever do anything like this? You know, if she, if she'll ever give any kind of performance on this level again. But like this is maybe she'll be one of those weirdos who's just in like every PTA movie now. Maybe that's the only um, thing she does. That's the only movie she me? does. He clearly has a good relationship, like with, I mean, the entire Heim family is in the movie. Like that's yeah. their mom and dad as well. So, yeah. um, yeah. and their their dad was pretty funny as well. I thought, but and I also um, cannot believe. I know this is a, this has been a joke or a comment that is that has been making the rounds already. So it's not original, but I thought it at the time as well. I cannot believe that Leonardo DiCaprio's dad was in a, a PTA movie before Leonardo DiCaprio was. Un unbelievable, given yeah DiCaprio's self curation of the movies that he does. And uh, the PTA averse or whatever is kind of played out in that whole thread because uh, Cooper Hoffman ends up selling waterbeds. And of course, uh, Philip yeah. Seymour Hoffman's character is a waterbed salesman in Punch Drunk Love. So that was a nice little little touch there. But um, but yeah, amazing movie. Um, you know, I know we spent uh, some time sort of going back and forth on maybe is this part of it problematic or whatever it was good, though it was a conversation. you've probably seen discourse about it do oh not God. let that overpower the, the discourse the, the discourse like, is stupid like the conversation the, the here is very is reasonable stupid. the discourse is stupid as as it as it usually is go see the movie for yourself decide for yourself how you feel even if you're more in scott's camp like i still I think still you're gonna find the movie. a lot to love in the movie right you're gonna find yeah. a lot to to really enjoy um and and again i you know we talked about it thematically. There's other stuff you could say maybe about, sure. you know, the character arcs and things like that. But ultimately, it's just a vibes movie. It's a hangout movie. And again, mm -hmm. the vibes were immaculate. I wanted to hang out these with these people for much longer. Um, I don't know what else there really is to say. Yeah, I will say I think that the weakest part of the movie is is for me was the 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 was it the is it governor mayor candidate stuff. Mayor, yeah. I thought that was a, a bit weaker relative to everything else. Um, See, but it was again, sort of... I think that was a nice PTA of like uh, that that restaurant scene at the end between Benny Safdie and his boyfriend was like a nice, unexpected. First of all, I like I didn't see that pl particular plot development coming. But number two, it turns into like a moment of pathos that like you're not expecting again because most of the movie is just kind of vibes and, and there's a lot of humor and everything and it turns into kind yeah. of a a sad like heartbreaking moment in a way of like again i think i think benny safi's character is being probably not handling it in the best way that he could but also like 
the yeah. fact that he has to like call Alana, he has to have her here because there's this creepy guy out there spying on him or whatever, trying to get dirt and the the dirt in this time in 1973 California, right, is that he's gay and that, you know, yeah. this guy that he's with is his his lover. And and you know, again, that's further cemented the whole scene where he she walks back to the house with Matthew is the guy's name. Joe Cross is the actor. Um and it's and clearly what cements the final moments, right? Like it, it's what sends her chasing after Gary, right? Yeah, and this is what I'm saying too. It's like, because he says like, "Oh, the they're all shits" or whatever. Like he says it about like basically talking about all men. Um, and to me, that's a moment for her of like, you know what? I've just realized, yeah, they all are. So why don't I just be with the person that I feel the best when I'm around? Um, and that's Gary. Uh, and again, we don't have to go down the route again because I sure. know what you're thought yeah, about. No, yeah, no, I was just gonna say my only pause is that it the way that everything is it just feels so anecdotal in the movie. Like everything is just this sort of very brief it's like a, everything is a brief encounter. It feels like that's happening. Mm -hmm. It felt like these other things are like kind of silly, funny stories to like tell your friends or kids or whatever one day. Right. And then this one is this like really poignant. I think it's trying to be this really poignant moment. But like, I don't know, them thematically, it didn't really feel like it, it totally resonated with the rest of the movie. And that's fine. It's kind of maybe the point of it, maybe even. But it it did, it sucked me out of the vibes a little bit, if you will. Yeah. Um, and I don't I don't disagree that it does that. I guess I just liked that again. I think sure, that's just sure. PTA showing off what he can do as a filmmaker, like the way that he can make you feel so many different emotions over the course of one movie, over the course of one scene, right? Again, that Bradley Cooper sequence, that long sequence, um, yeah. you know, goes in a, a bunch of different directions. Um, another thing I want to say before we wrap up, great use of long takes in this movie. Um, some really, like, captivating long takes. of it's, A lot of times it's just people walking again or running. Um, the, the long take when... Uh, Gary like goes into like the expo again where you see John C. Riley for a second and he's just like sort of walking through and talking to that's yeah that's, people. that's the yeah. one that jumps out in my mind that was that was superb um again very very aesthetically pleasing like it would be very easy again because it is such a vibes heavy hangout movie to just be like we're just going to set down the camera we're going to let the actors and the dialogue do the work but there's a there's a lot going on here. I mean it's PTA um, there's a lot going on here just with camera placements and, you know, techniques and everything. So um, bravo for that. Uh, let's wrap did up, the, Scott. Did he, he didn't do enough split diopter for me. <laughs> He's not Brian De Palma. Okay, <laughs> calm down. Um, favorite scene or moment from Licorice Pizza? Uh, yeah. Something with Skylar Gisondo. I just really loved that character. When he's unbuttoning it's... his shirt on the plane, maybe. <laughs> so funny. I loved everything about that, about that sort of vignette. Um, I mean, it has it probably is the final, right? The final scene that you sort of get with him with at coming over for dinner uh, at the family house. It's it's that or it's it's the long take with Bradley Cooper um in the middle of that sort of vignette. It's just yeah, I mean, those are there's so many options to choose from, but those are probably the highlights for me. Yeah, I've said, you know, I've said a lot of my favorite moments. I also think uh, to talk, you know, I talked about the needle drops being really good. Um, there's a needle drop where they drop um, Let Me Roll It by Wings, which is 
it's primarily the scene where they're like laying on the waterbed next to each other. Um, incredible needle drop. Like it just fit the, the mood and everything of the scene uh, so perfectly. And then, you know, we do get the li life on Mars, like almost immediately after that, which I think was also less satisfying than the trailer though. Sorry guys. I disagree. I think that I think it was even better in the movie, but, um, but yeah, the let me roll it needle drop in that whole sequence where he he plays the good guy right he 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 tries to go for he's gonna go in for to feel her up or whatever and then he's like you know know what this is not this is not right i don't feel right about this um so he, he doesn't play the good guy later when at the waterbed store he hooks up with a different girl that is true with uh oh i forget what her name was but um anyway uh scott let's put a score on it what do you give licorice pizza Staying consistent on this episode, 8.0. 10 out of 10, favorite movie of the year, easily. Um, hmm. I don't know what else. Such a shame that you're a racist for liking this movie. And a pedophile. Don't forget <laughs> yeah. pedophile also. Oh, um, yeah. You might as well get both. I mean, once you have one, you might as well the other. Yeah. Uh, again, I, I think the racist stuff is bad. Like, I do think it's bad, but it doesn't stop the movie from being a 10 out of 10, 10, out of 10 for me. Um, it. It's my favorite movie that's come out since Little Women two years, which is over two years ago now. Um, so yeah. it, it would be I would be crazy if I didn't give it a ten. Um, it's it's perfect, and everyone should see it. It's not. Perfect it, it wouldn't have been crazy because it has the racist. It has the racist. It's not perfect because it's racist stuff, but it's as close yeah. to perfect as a movie with racist stuff and it can get. Um, I, I wasn't feeling super dickish last night when you posted when you like had your Instagram story and was like it's perfect. I don't want to be like it's not, but. I mean, I, yeah, I didn't it, do that. No. It, I knew it, true. It, it is not, but the experience of watching it. Sure. I mean, like, like I said from the very beginning of when I started reviewing, it's utterly intoxicating. It is. I want to just go watch it again right now. Um, all right, Scott, that should just about do it for this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Where can our listeners find you on Twitter? At Shelton2013. I have joined the ranks of film Twitter. I'm trying to tweet more regularly i tweeted a couple times in the last few days yeah i was gonna say i love when you always say this because literally what yeah. it means is i <laughs> tweeted like three times this week it's so true though uh i thought yeah. i had some good tweets this week oh yeah keep keep getting those tweets off um we love to see it uh i'm at scarvy dent on twitter and letterboxd uh don't forget uh, about our podcast as well on social media and on patreon at patreon.com slash media plug pods uh, we hope you can support us over there, even if you can't, though. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, do all the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. And we hope you'll be back for our next episode of the podcast, on which we will be reviewing Maggie Gyllenhaal's directorial debut, the Netflix film The Lost Daughter. Uh, but until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you next time. Yeah.